0: Prove it, he said. If you can prove it, if you can get your God to do something right now, right in front of me, if he can prove himself, do something that I can see, then I'll believe. Then I'll believe. That was a conversation that Terence and Simon and I had down in the SGU last week. It's kind of the pointy end of it. Um, Chatting with a non-Christian guy about God, about whether he exists. Good conversation to have. Uh, And that was where we ended up. Prove it, he said. Unless you can prove that your God is there, unless he does something that we can see, something visible right there, right in front of us, unless you can do that, I'm not going to believe. We talked about all sorts of things. We talked about um, the historicity of the Bible, how it weighs up, how it's true. Uh, We talked about um, the design of the universe, how it kind of points us to the fact that there is a creator. Uh, we pointed to a lot of different things, a lot of arguments um, that you know often we as Christians use to convince people that God's there. It's quite a reasonably long conversation. It was a good conversation to have, but in the end, I just said, "Well, tell me, tell me straight, what do you need uh, to be able to believe?" And his answer: I need proof. I want God to do something, show Himself right now, show His power. And then, then I would believe. What do you do in a situation like that? I don't know if you've had any conversations like that. Um, but what do you say? What do you do? Do you, do you kind of pray? Do you pray that God might send some lightning bolt there and then to kind of prove Himself? I mean, that'd be, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? It's kind of bang. Yeah. He's there. What do you do? What do you say? Well, Jesus said, look to the sign of Jonah. That's what Jesus said. Jesus uh, was asked this very same question. We just heard it there in Matthew Matthew 12, verse 38. Uh, these Pharisees, this bunch of guys who, who consistently kind of doubted who Jesus was, these Pharisees, they came to Jesus in Matthew 12 and they, they say to him, they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see your power. We want you to do something so that we know that you are who you say you are. And what does Jesus say in response? Well, have a look there if you've still got Matthew 12 open. Matthew 12, 39 to 40, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. I wasn't bold enough to say that. our <laughs> Jesus goes on, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. But just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? Look to Jonah, Jesus says. Three days, three nights, that's the sign. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus do that to you? I mean, if anyone could have called down lightning and said, bang, look, this is who I am, it was Jesus, right? But he doesn't do that. No, he goes, look to the sign of Jonah. Go back there. Why doesn't Jesus just do another miracle? Uh, that'd, that'd win him over, wouldn't it? If he did that. Show a miracle, prove himself. That'd get people to believe, wouldn't it? Well, the problem is that Jesus has just done a whole stack of miracles. You read the, you read the um, chapters 10 and 11 of Matthew's gospel and Jesus just hasn't stopped doing miracles, showing his power, showing who he is. Uh, he's just um, cleansed the leper. He's healed a paralytic. He's raised Jairus' daughter back to life. He's done all these miracles, powerful displays of who he is. And yet still they demand a sign. The initial response that the Pharisees, that the crowds had, was one of amazement and awe. How, how amazing is Jesus, I would say, but after a few days, kind of dwindles down. Do something new, Jesus. Do something now, something for us, right now. Do it again. See, the impression of miracles wears off, doesn't it? Flashy signs. We see, don't actually win people over. Sometimes I think we as Christians fall for this. We think sometimes, I think this, you know, if we could just get the music right, or if we could just have the, the right speaker, then people would become Christian, then people would come. If we could just get whatever it is, if we could just do that one thing, then people would have to become Christian, would have a revival. Let's get that speaker up from Melbourne. Let's get this band in and let's let's dim the lights, eh? Why don't we dim the lights? That might help. Do something like that. Then people will be saved. You ever think that way? The problem is, and this is the key, I think, is that it, it doesn't actually work like that. See, the power to save people is never in us and what we do. No, it's in God and what he does. Even if we could call down miracles, even if I could just go lightning bang right now, that wouldn't save people. No, God doesn't work that way. God's not actually into proving himself in that sort of a way. God's actually done something much greater than just sending a miracle. God sent himself and his son and that's what the sign of Jonah is actually all about Jesus says look to the sign of Jonah look back there he says why well because it points us to the greatest miracle it points us to the miracle of salvation of how it actually works how it happens the miracle is that it's God who saves sinners that's what Jesus is talking about that's what he wants us to see It's not about miracles. It's not about being flashy. It's about God. God is the one who saves. So, what we see in Jonah 2, what we're going to look at tonight, is that salvation comes from the Lord. That's verse 9 of chapter 2. It's God's work to save people, it's God who shows mercy, it's God who gives grace. It's God who answers people with abundant mercy, gives them life when they call out to him. That's what we're going to see as we look at Jonah. And I think we need to see this afresh. We as Christians need to hear this over and over again. We need to understand that it's God who saves because that's what actually helps us understand our part in this mission that we're on. Remember last week we talked about how God's people were never meant to just be a group. No, God's people were always, from Israel right until now, always meant to be a blessing to the nations. God blessed them, saved them, gave them everything, what they are, called them to be his people, so that his blessings would flow through them and go to the nations. The way that happens, though, is that God saves through us. God saves through us we need to hear this loud and clear and I think that's what Jonah 2 shows us, that's why Jesus points us back there he wants to show us it's not all about human effort, it's about relying on God who saves so if you missed out last week, if you missed out on Jonah 1, let me give you a quick recap last week we looked at the first 16 verses of Jonah, uh, we saw God call this prophet Jonah uh, this Israelite Uh, God spoke to him, gave him a message, told him, Jonah, go to this place, Nineveh, big city, a little bit like Bendigo, a bit bigger than Bendigo, a little bit rougher than Bendigo, I think. They were pretty rough people, the Assyrians. Nineveh was a couple of Assyria. Um, I've heard some bad stories about the marketplace, apparently it's a lot rough, but you know, I haven't been there too often. I don't want to bag the marketplace. It's got some nice shops. I actually had a massage there not long ago. It was nice. I don't know, you guys ever have a massage? I I get sore neck every now and then. It's nice to get a you know a back and neck massage. It's, it's worth the thirty bucks. That wasn't in my script, but anyway. Well, Jonah was sent to Nineveh. God called him, gave him a job. Jonah go to Nineveh. Jonah says, No. Nah. Instead of heading east, northeast, he goes west. Goes down, gets on a boat and heads west. Disobeys God. 1 verse 3 says Jonah plans to flee the Lord's presence. Wants nothing to do with God. Gets out of there. He's disobedient. What does God do? Jonah's on the boat. God sends a storm. A massive storm. A storm that's so powerful the boat itself is about to break up. The sailors, these seasoned sailors, they can't even imagine like they've never been in such a swell. And they come out to Jonah and they say, Jonah, what do we need to do to stop this storm, to appease your God? Jonah says, you need to throw me in the water. We kind of unpacked that last week. You can listen on the website to the talk if you want to understand all that stuff. Jonah says, throw me in the water and they do. They throw him in. And what happens? The storm dies down. And Jonah, well where's he left? End of one verse, chapter 1 verse 16. He's sinking down in the sea below the waves. That's where we've left Jonah. So that's where we pick it up. Jonah, chapter 1 verse 17, is sinking down under the waves, drowning. But what do we see? Chapter 1, verse 17, we see God miraculously intervene. Jonah, who disobeyed God, who wanted nothing to do with God, sinking down, drowning. He's actually getting what he deserved. Chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah set out to flee the Lord's presence. He's getting that now. He's being cut off from God as he sinks to his death. That's what death is. It's being forsaken, cut off from God. Jonah's getting what he wanted, what he chose in his disobedience. A bit like a lot of people, a bit like us sometimes. Just ignore God, leave him alone. What does it lead to? It leads to death. Jonah, who set out, flee from God. Here he is, he's sinking down. And what happens? Well, God saves him. God saves him. God acts. God appoints this agent of salvation, a fish, a big fish. Maybe a whale. We don't know what it is. There's no kind of um, botanical name in the Bible to give us what it is. Um, But God intervenes. Chapter 1, verse 17. Have a look at it there in your Bible. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You can skip out verses 1 to 9, we're not going to skip them completely, but you can skip them, skip down to verse 10, and and the next thing that happens, God spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. What happens here? Jonah, drowning, getting the death that he deserved. Then God reaches down, saves him, through this Obedient fish. It's fish that did God's work for him. Jonah is safe. It's a pretty extraordinary story, isn't it? Being thrown overboard, drowning, swallowed by a massive fish, three days until he gets to the shore, spat out, vomited, vomited on by fish guts, whatever it was. But then he's safe. Rescued, able to breathe. Able to live. Saved from death. And chapter 2 that we're looking at tonight, uh, verses 1 to 9, are actually something that Jonas said. It's a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving. That Jonas says while he's inside the whale. Three days he was in there, text tells us. Had a bit of time to think. Uh, so we have this poem actually prayer, a poem of thanksgiving that Jonah prays to God I don't know if you've ever had a brush with death uh, if you've nearly died Um, I've had a few moments but none as close as a friend of mine I was walking behind a friend, a few of us were walking in Sydney and a friend of mine just didn't look and she walked kind of, you know roads have got a little gutter she put a foot down over the gutter, took one more step, and a friend of mine reached her back, and a bus went flying past. If my friend didn't pull her back, she would have died there and then. We were so thankful that my friend saw her and pulled her back. And when she tells that story, she just overflows with thankfulness. She says, you know, something like, "I." Oh, yeah, I was walking down and I didn't even see the bus. But then I was so thankful for my friend. And she just goes on and on and on about how thankful she is to her friend who saved her. And that's a little bit like what this, these verses, verses 1 to 9, this prayer of thankfulness that Jonah prays because God has saved him from death to life. In verse 2, we see Jonah actually begins to recount uh, his experience he recounts the fact that he cried out to the Lord as he sank into the sea. Have a look there at verse 2. I called out in my distress and you answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. As Jonah was sinking into the depths of the sea, into the belly of death, Sheol, Jonah called out, he prayed to God, save me God. And God rescued him. He'd been cast into the depths, the flood had swept over him, verse 3. And as he was sinking down, verse 4, have a look at there, he concludes that he's got his kind of initial wish. He says there, I've been driven away from, the God's, from God's presence. But now, now that Jonah's sinking down, now that he actually sees what it means to be away from God's presence, now that he sees what it means to be without God, he sees how terrible it is. So in his distress, he calls out to God. God save me. And God did it. So now, second half of verse 4, sitting in the whale, Jonah says, I shall look again upon your holy temple. It's a, it's a statement of thankfulness. I shall go again and see the Lord. I shall worship him again. I have not died, is the sentiment of that verse. See, Jonah's death, he's brushed with death, sorry, he didn't actually die. He's brushed with death, but changes him. He sees that he needs God as he stares death in the face. And now that God has saved him, he sees that God truly is good. There was a saying in World War II uh, that there are no atheists in foxholes. I don't know if you know what a foxhole is. The foxhole there, it describes the trench that those men in World War II dug themselves and sat in and as bullets flew overhead and their fellow soldiers poured out over those trenches and went into battle. Certain death the saying was, there are no atheists in foxholes. Every man prayed to God before he went out over that trench. As we stare death in the face, we realize we need our Maker. We need Him to save us. And Jonah here, as he is drowning, as he is in that moment of dying, he realizes that he needs the Lord, that he needs a Saviour there's no atheists in foxholes and there's no atheists in people like Jonah when they're drowning in the sea the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, 17th century guy passionate guy, he used to pray this prayer he used to pray for himself that God would stamp eternity onto his eyeballs I don't know if you can picture that getting a stamp on your eyeball I got a thorn in my eye once and it really hurt you're going to get something stamped on your eyeball you'll see it won't you you'll never not see it Jonathan Edwards used to pray that we could see eternity always so if we could see that our path of ignoring God leads to this death and hell which Jonah's experience is describing we would never choose it for us who are saved if we could see that our eternity leads to eternal bliss with our Heavenly Father, with Jesus, with each other. We we'll never choose to follow anything else. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Pray that the Lord would stamp eternity onto our eyeballs. It's a weird prayer, but it's a good prayer. So here in verse 5, as we get back to the story, Jonah's eyes are finally opened to the fate that he has chosen. The water's closed in over me, he says. The deep has surrounded me. Weeds have wrapped around my head. So he's describing his his dying, his drowning. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is describing his slow descent. He's going down, his descent to death. And he sees this as the fate that he has chosen. See, like we said earlier, Jonah chose this fate when he first decided to disobey God. And he's been on a downward path ever since. The way the book of Jonah is written gives us us this amazing little um, insight into Jonah's slow descent in the way the language is used. Remember in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, God told told Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, He was meant to get up and do God's work, standing up. But in verse three, he goes down to Joppa, to flee God's presence. Then in verse five of chapter one, he goes down again, he goes down into the inner part of the ship. Then in one fifteen, he goes down again, he goes down into the sea. In two verse three, he goes even further down, he goes down into the deepest parts. Into the heart of the sea. And now finally, two verse seven, he goes down. To the land whose bars close upon him. See what happens? Jonah just, ever since he turned his back on God, he's going down. Down, down. Every step he takes away from God is a slow descent to death, to hell. That's what Jonah is experiencing here. That's what he's described. See, to walk away from God, to choose the life of sin and rebellion is actually to choose death. It's a slow downward spiral to death. We don't see it initially. It might seem like a small thing, that sin, that little thing. But what we see here in Jonah's experience is its final destination. That unrepentant disobedience against God slowly leads to death, to downward spiral. If only God would stamp eternity on our eyeballs, we would never choose it. Shooting. The good news is, the good news is that this poem isn't actually a poem about death. If you want to read a poem about death, chase up some John Donne written a lot about death it's quite, or maybe some Sylvia Plath if you're into that sort of thing. She was a weird lady. I don't know if anyone's read Sylvia Plath. She actually killed herself by putting her head in the oven after she wrote her last poem. She was fascinated with death. This isn't a poem about death. This is a poem about thankfulness. Thankfulness for God's mercy. Have a look there at the end of verse 6. Jonah sitting in the whale having been saved from his fate. And what's he doing? Well, he's praising God. He's thanking God. Verse 6, let me read it. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. Yet you, Lord, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord and my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered you. I prayed to you and you, Lord, heard me. You heard my cry. You safe? See, though jo- Jonah chose death through his rebellion, through his disobedience, though he turned his back on God, God mercifully waited for Jonah. Even after Jonah repeatedly sinned, God waited for him, he patiently waited, held out mercy. And then, in that moment, when Jonah finally saw the path he had chosen and he decided that he didn't want that, he calls out to God. God sweeps him up. And Satan rescues him. That's what our God is like. Our God wants to save. You can kind of picture it, can't you? Jonah's sinking down, slowly sinking down. And finally he realises that he's turned his back on God. And as soon as he looks up and cries out to God, he's saved. That's what God is like. He's powerful to save. But more than that, he's willing to save. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question is, the question I have is, how could God do this? How can God, who we've rejected, who Jonah's rejected, how can he just forgive? Does he just sweep it all under the carpet? Does he not care about the fact that we rebel against him? Although well, no, he does care. How can God forgive? Well, because the sign of Jonah actually points us to Jesus. Jesus called it himself in Matthew 12. God can forgive us because Jesus himself sunk down to death for us. Just like Jonah sank to death and was rescued by God, so Jesus came down and he, as he sat on that cross, He was overwhelmed by the sea of God's judgment and he sank to death for us as our substitute. Jesus did not deserve death but he chose to take it on for himself, for us. Jesus came to save. That was his mission. He chose to be drowned under the weight of sin in order that he might defeat it, in order that he might overthrow it once and for all so that we don't have to die. See, as Jesus dies on that cross, as the waters of judgment close in on him, as those thorns are wrapped around his head, he drowns as our substitute. He died so that we, like Jonah at the end of the story, can walk freely on safe land. Yet that's not the end of the story, is it? See, like Jonah, Jesus rose too. Three days and three nights in the tomb. But then he rose. Like Jonah was vomited out on the safe land, Jesus too overthrew the grave. Death could not hold him down. He defeated it and he leaves our guilt at the bottom of the sea so we don't have to face it anymore. It's for. <coughs> the Apostle Paul, after reflecting on Jesus' resurrection, on Jesus' defeat of death, he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He says that because it's gone. For those who call out, who put their trust in Jesus, death has no sting. Our death, our physical death, is just an entry into life for eternity. It has no sting. See, this is the miracle that Jesus was talking about. This is the sign of Jonah. To us, who, like Jonah, were sinking in our sin, sinking to death, for us who were as good as dead in a raging sea, we too have been rescued by God's mercy, plucked out, raised and given new life. Paul says in Ephesians 2, says this of Christian people, he says, you were dead in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the spirit of disobedience. By nature you are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. If you're a Christian person's life, Jonah's story is your story. God, being rich in mercy, reached down and rescued you, gave you life, not through a whale, but through his own son who died for you. If you're not a Christian, if you've never taken hold of Jesus' offer of forgiveness, then this offer still stands for you. God is waiting for you to call out to him to embrace his offer of mercy and forgiveness. To let Jesus trade his life for yours. So that you can live forever with him. And if you do that, I guarantee it will change you. Look at Jonah again. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He's a changed man, isn't he? Verses 8 and 9. He says, those who regard idols... Forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is, those who chase after the things of this world, um, those who who just chase after things like sex or money or power or success or whatever it is, chasing after idols, worshipping those things most. Chase after those things and you'll miss out on God. You'll forsake the hope of God's steadfast love. But I, verse 9, Jonah says. He says this, With a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Can you see the change in Jonah's life? After seeing and knowing his salvation, he overflows with thankfulness. Instead of running from God, now he's ready to make sacrifices for God. Give up things for God. Follow him in his life. He's ready now to live for God. To live for him. Why? What is it that changes Jonah? What that he knows his salvation? That he sees clearly what he's been saved from. And now he knows what he's been saved to. God has given him new life. God's mercy changes you. probably know the story of Jean Valjean. That's my French. Jean Valjean in Les Mis. Um, Jean Valjean was a hardened criminal. Uh, he'd been a slave for his whole life. But then he got freed. Freed from slavery, but life wasn't easy for him. He, he was thrown out on the street. He had nothing <coughs> to live off. But a bishop welcomed him in, said, you can stay in the church tonight. Have this as shelter over the roof and we'll see what we can do in the morning. Jean Valjean, though, wakes up early and he sees this opportunity to make a start in life. So he gets a Hessian bag and he goes around the church and he puts as much silverware in it as he can take. Steals it from the church and runs. He's going to sell it. He's going to make a start in life. City guards, though, they catch Jean Valjean and they recognise that the uh, silverware is from the church and they drag him back in. They take him to the, to the bishop and they say, this man has stolen from you. And the bishop looks at the guards and says, I did not, he did not steal from me. I gave him those things. And then he looks at Jean Valjean and Jean Valjean can't believe it. He thought he was going to get condemned, thrown back in jail. He looks back at Jean Valjean and he says, Brother, I'm glad you came back. You forgot to take the candlesticks with you. And he gets the candlesticks and he puts them in the bag and he sends him on his way. This bishop has been stolen from, robbed from, shows incredible mercy and forgiveness. And in the rest of the movie, in the rest of the play, or the book, whatever form you've seen, lay missing. Jean Valjean is a changed man. He makes it his endeavor to live an honest life. And he does, even when it's really hard. And he consistently keeps remembering that one act of mercy that was shown to him. He lives because mercy was shown to him. It changes him. It's an incredible movie. But it only half picks up on what we have in Christ, doesn't it? If only we could have eternity stamped on our eyes that we could see that we've been taken from eternal death to eternal life. That would change us. And it does change us. That's why Jesus says, look at the sign of Jonah. Go back there. Look. It's God who saves. That's your story. See, Jonah 2, it teaches us that it's God who saves and it's God who changes us. We see this filled out in the New Testament even further in places like John 3. You see that God sends his Holy Spirit to rebirth people. So they're reborn, given a whole new life. It's God who saves, God who extends mercy. And friends, I think that gives us amazing hope as we think about doing mission here on campus. See, if it's God who saves, that means that it's not actually all up to us. It means we can be hopeful for everyone, doesn't it? Even the hard cases, people who consistently reject Jesus. Because it's not actually about the quality of our arguments. It's not about us having just the right timing or choosing the right opportunity or saying the exact right words because no matter what we do, we can't win people in. It's God who saves. So what does this mean for us? means we pray it means we pray we ask God that he would pour out his salvation on this university on our friends, on our family on our classmates it's God who saves, it gives us amazing hope I think to know that it doesn't actually all rest on us it frees us to be patient with people but more than that it calls on us to pray for people to pray for our friends see God works to save but he works to save through people like us we're not completely off the hook God's not going to do it just by himself that's not how he works you see in Jonah's case there was an agent of salvation a whale you see in our case God sent Jesus to save us we saw last week that God sends out his apostles to the nations. He sends people like us. The way God works is that people like us who know how good God is speak. Out of the overflow of our heart, we speak because we're so thankful for the mercy that has been shown to us. And we pray that God would use those words, however strong or however weak they might sound at the time. We pray that God would use those words and that he would open blind eyes. We pray that God would stamp eternity on people's eyes so that they might see their plight and turn back to him. So will you do that? Will you join in praying to our God? praying that he will extend his mercy and save people. And he will send his spirit to give new life. We don't need to just push people.